in the beginning, I have a couple of episodes that just go over the basics for drug pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, which might make people's eyes glaze over. But then we're taking a patient case through different parts of the hospital. So the emergency room, oh. the operating room, the, the med surge floor, the ICU, to look at the same question about opiate safety with interviews from all these different professionals wow. in all these different areas. And then I'm bringing in periodically some of the cases and events that are fictionalized to walk through and pull out some of the pearls of what we've learned. And so it's intended not only to provide individuals who work primarily in an OR about, hey, this is what med surge is like, or hey, this is what's going on in the ED, to expand awareness for those clinicians, but also to identify some of the questions that are happening in other areas that are different and also the same and what some of the people are doing there. What a so, cool idea. Yeah, so it's kind of like around the world in an acute care facility to look at the same issue from all these different perspectives. It's almost like a true crime podcast. And I say that because I see a lot of people hit that first podcast where I'm talking about drug kinetics, yeah. <laughs> and then they never come back. <laughs> Everybody, welcome to the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin, and you are in for a treat today. And when I'm talking about treat, I'm talking like a, a giant Toblerone, right? Or a, a huge Reese cup the size of a manhole cover. That would be a treat. And that's kind of what today's podcast is all about. You're going to really dig this podcast because we're going to talk to our buddy, Michael Van Orman. Now, you may not know Michael. And if not, you need to, because it's a must know. But he has a podcast called the Medication Safety Podcast. And I teased it because we had a really fun conversation. And he based it loosely on the old pre-accident investigation podcast. So what do you say? But they contacted me and said they would love to have me on their podcast. And you know the deal. If I'm on their podcast, they have to be on my podcast. That's how it works. The kids call this a collab. It's a collab, which I think is short for collaboration. I haven't really checked that, but I'm going with it. That's, that's what I believe. This is a fun, fun conversation because it really crosses all of our disciplines. It's not just going to be about medication safety because I know nothing about that. It's really kind of a, a, a larger conversation around how we look at resilience and reliability in high-risk, high-consequence industry, which is what we do for a living. So see, it fits, and that's perfect. Everything is grand here, um, other than, you know, I'm not getting enough bike riding in, and I can feel it. It's weird how I've become somewhat um, like an ex-smoker. Like, I've become fixated on riding this stupid bicycle, but I haven't been able, it's been... It's been kind of snowy for us, which is fine and good, and we need the moisture, and so I'm not complaining, but yikes. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's slippery and slicky and uh, messy and muddy, and I'm kind of a wuss. So add all those things together, and you get to stay home and sit on the couch, which isn't all bad either. I mean, it really isn't terrible either. But other than that, you know, that's just kind of how things are going. It's been... Uh, it's been interesting to talk to folks. Everybody's really busy. I know you are, and, and I mean you and I, but everyone else, too, is really hardly anybody's loafing right now. There's lots of activity happening, lots of excitement in the world, and I, I guess that keeps us all sane and out of jail, which is a relatively good place to stay out of, unless you work there, and then it's a great place. I mean, just nothing wrong with that at all. Let's put that on the record as well. But I'm pretty excited to give you a chance to kind of listen to this podcast. I, I think it's uh, this was a great conversation. You're gonna you're gonna enjoy this much. It is going to be fun. So without much further ado, and I'm full of ado, you know me, ado laden. Let's talk to Michael and let's talk about this medication safety podcast and all the stuff and assorted sundries that go with this conversation. Sit back and enjoy. You're gonna learn something today. I bet you a nickel have to work with it that's actually sounds great you sound amazing 
Ah, so, as do you. Well, you know, I work out and I try to eat right, and I'm nice to animals and small children. So I, I, yeah. I, I earn it, I think. That's, that's what I think. Well, you have an amazing, wonderful uh, spirit on the podcast that your, your joy and uh, positivity come through all the time. It's wow. I greatly appreciate it. That is so kind of you. Thank you. And yeah. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. So, and believe me, this is mutual. This is a, a dream come true for me because as uh, your podcast has been a, an inspiration to kind of reach out and try to address some things in healthcare. Because when I go on and look for medication safety, I can't find anything in podcasts. Yeah. So yeah. There's, that was, there's kind of a need there. And, and that's what, and you've got one running now, right? Yes. That is so cool. So, I'm so excited. So I said, Hey, um, and you kind of laid a foundation. So I said, I, I want to try to do something that's specific for medication safety. Anything I can do so, to be a part of that, I'm glad to help and vice versa. So this will be fun. Yeah. I'm I'm excited. For, I, I really am kind of excited. I was a little worried we couldn't get the mic working. And I was like, crap, we're going to have to reschedule. But now we're fine. It's great now. Yeah, this is great. Uh, I would say welcome to the Applied Medication Safety Podcast. Well, take I've it away. Some, take it away. I'm yours. So ask, ask anything some, and I'll ask you stuff. I absolutely. Um, I, I had a, a couple of questions at, that I wanted to queue up for you because uh, the impression that that we have working in medication safety is that you're, you know, you and Decker and 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 Bob are talking about how risk is an emergent property of processes, and like the current technology in healthcare is. Heinrich's pyramid. Right, right. And you know we're we're trying to move the ball along that cultural line. One of the things that is fairly popular are incentive and award structures and I'm curious have you ever found an incentive or award structure that was productive uh, and and positive? No. Um and what's funny is that Pretty much every incentive and award structure eventually becomes a boat anchor around the organization where they feel like they don't get any benefit from it, but they can't stop it because they've built a culture that expects the incentive and reward. And so not only does it not improve reliability and resilience, but it kind of almost hamstrings the organization into this weird program. The the example I'll give you is I worked with an organization that gave away a brand new pickup to every crew leader who had a perfect year. And I mean, you can sort of fill in the blanks what happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lots of hidden events, bloody pockets, uh, non-reporting. And they, they were committed to this dumb pickup thing. And it was really hard for them to get out of it. They just, it was a, it was a huge struggle. And when they stopped the program, people got really upset. That means you're important. Um, people got really upset and, and really frustrated. There are all these. Sorry. No, it's a phone next to me. That's kind of cool. You're like, it's like you're in the space shuttle. That thing's amazing. So, so it's, it was super difficult for them to get out of it. But my favorite one just happened. This probably happened a week ago where uh, a person, a person wrote me and said, every Friday we pick the group that had the safest week, take them to lunch. And then they get the rest of Friday afternoon off, which I think is an incredibly, I like what anything has free lunch. I'm in, but free lunch with the rest of Friday afternoon off that that's like the dream incentive. And, um, they said they were really having a problem because the same team wins it every single time they do it. And uh, that's sort of a little problem. So that's a long answer to a really quick question. You're you're never going to reward people into caring more, and you're probably not going to punish people into caring more, because um, they don't seem to. Money doesn't seem to be a terribly significant motivator. It is. It's 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 extremely important, but it's not a significant motivator. It's it's not the big motivator. So let me wind back a little bit because I feel like I may have jumped the gun with the question. No, no worries. 
there might be something a little more here. So in healthcare, when we talk about safety, it's not generally worker safety. Right, it's patient it's, safety. Absolutely. Yeah. It, and, and that's a very different focus. And when we have acknowledgement and, uh, and it's incentive programs, but the incentive is often peer acknowledgement. So we have these, hey, attaboy, you did a great job. And it feels like the fundamental flaw in that program, while the intent is laudable and good, we want to acknowledge each other. We want to recognize the accomplishments of the other person, but it's focusing on an outcome. And it's unfortunate that the same process that produces good outcomes produces bad outcomes. Right. And so it becomes a very lopsided application where you have a person who has all of these recognitions and awards because they've essentially been extending from their own resources to cover over the flaws of a system that right. have now been unrecognized. Right. So they're using their discretionary time and their their excess attention or their, their attention resource, their tank of attention to to actually fix a problem in a really bad system. You're exactly right. And and the same thing holds true. I mean, it's crazy to me. You'll have to explain to me how in healthcare, I don't, it, is the fundamental belief that people don't want, that people go into, I, I don't even know how to phrase this question. People go into healthcare because they want to help people get better. That generally seems to be true across the board, mm -hmm. everyone you talk to. Yeah. Does management believe that's not true? <laughs> No, uh, there's a, it's almost an Orwellian double think. Yeah, kind of. Where it's, we're here for the patient. We know that people go into healthcare to take care of patients. It's the, the raison d'etre. It's the reason for existence for the vast majority of workers yeah. that we want to take care of patients. And then when bad things happen, this linear thinking of root cause and it, it's the worker comes into play. And it's the bad apple mentality or philosophy that we just, if we weed out enough bad apples, then we'll have a, a good process. Do you, do you think it's because the idea that a failure is an organizational failure is not attainable to leadership? They, they assume every failure is an individual that failed the system. Whereas what I've seen, at least in the, the and I was on a call yesterday with a big hospital, um, and they were dealing with people dying in the waiting room of the emergency department. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that strikes me that that's not an individual worker failing the hospital. That's the hospital systems failing the individual nurse who has to look over 75 people at any one time in a waiting room. And that yeah. difference between an individual failure and an organizational failure seems to be almost a, a new concept to, to, the leadership, at least in that organization. Very much so. Uh, there are multiple, I would say, conflicts of interest that exist when there is a serious safety event, such as a, a patient death. We could take the very publicized case of uh, Redonda Vaught and sure. where, where we had the, my dad, the order for midazolam or Versed, and instead she took Vecuronium inadvertently. And that undoubtedly went before a safety event review committee or CERC uh, would be the, the name for that. The members of that committee typically in, in many hospitals are going to be the administrators and folks from the C-suite. They are the individuals who are making the designation and defining whether or not this is a serious safety event. Those are the same individuals who are being graded on how safe they are. Right. That, that's an inherent conflict of yeah, interest. Absolutely. And one easy way that I would love to see is in these multi-hospital systems is you can keep all your resources the same, keep the same people there, but just review events from other hospitals and blind it. Yeah. So then you're just reviewing an event. Yeah. And then you can determine whether it's, hey, this didn't happen here, but do you think it's serious or not? And then that way you're you're providing a little bit more objectivity without increasing tons of resources. Why don't they do that? I mean, it's, it's, I, it's I as easy know. as just doing it, right? I mean, do they, yeah. but is it, so let's, let me ask some questions. Cause you're, you're, you can help me. 
are the leaders of hospitals generally sociopathic? <laughs> you don't have to answer. I mean, that's, maybe that's kind of a – because if they don't want the patient safety to improve – then why are they doing the job they have? And I, those are, these are hard questions that I, I'm not sure uh, have answers. But, but it would strike me that if we looked at this problem as an as a ongoing improvement effort, and we really looked at at resilience and stability as the optimal goal, effective execution, then we would the blind the the learning process would become a tool for improvement, not a tool for punishment. And it seems Absolutely. like, it seems like now they're using the learning process to manage liability. So there are three different stakeholders in our event review system. And we have one event review system. And the reason why that's significant will become transparently clear. The, the primary stakeholder that you have in that event event review system is risk management. And their focus is really on the legal liability that attaches to the institution. Right. Are we going to get sued? Yeah, the exposure, <laughs> the exposure to the institution. Yes. So the second primary stakeholder in there is a quality and safety department. And their primary focus is on regulatory compliance. Right. And so they're looking at uh, for us, it's the CMS and everybody that's the derivative right. from there. We have Board of Pharmacy. We have the Drug Enforcement Agency. We, we've got all kinds of three-letter agencies that are, are in there. And quality and safety is looking at the metrics that are examined. They're, they're, they're filtering through all these reported events for signs of, of how well they're complying with metrics. Then you have patient safety which is an area that I tend to work in, uh, specifically medication safety. And our focus is the patient. So when you have a different focus, you end up categorize, wanting to categorize things very differently. For example, I have a, a patient who's admitted to the hospital experiencing an adverse effect from a medication. I want to record that. Uh, from the patient's perspective, this is not a normal day. I did right. not plan on going to the emergency department. Right, <laughs> it yeah. was an adverse effect. Right. Uh, from the hospital perspective, uh, from risk management, they say, "Well, we don't need to put an event in there. That wasn't our fault. There's, there's no legal attachment to this case. It should, it should never come up in court. We didn't do anything wrong." Um, and then, you know, quality and risk—they're they're kind of uh, hanging on. They, they could go either way depending on uh, that particular patient's case. So we end up with one single system that is trying to serve three masters and that somebody has to take the lead and it defaults usually to uh, risk management. So it really does become kind of a liability control function with very much any improvement sort of being accidental or ancillary to to the larger risk management, which is really more of a liability management. I mean, it's yes. a little bit offensive. They call it risk management mm -hmm. because oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's the, you know, it's like the elite risk to the elite management is maybe a better way to say that, but I don't want to get us in trouble. So no, no, <laughs> but that, I, I thought that's a nice illustration, at least of some of the conflicting yeah, priorities that create the situations that we're working with. And those conflicts have to be resolved at some level. I mean, yes. where's this being done well? Where are some really good patient safety programs in the world or oh, in the United States and North America? So I, I will say I've been very impressed with John Hopkins. I don't want to call out names, but there is a uh, – I've had interaction with some of their patient safety folks, and they have dedicated quite a few resources to yeah. that uh, yeah. area. Um, and when I see the dedication of resources and the follow through that they're able to do to close the loop on reports and to do timely follow through, then it tells me that that's doing pretty good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I, I think that is um, there are places that are moving forward, uh, but there's quite a range, I think, of adoption across. And, and those places tend to be more the, of an exception than the norm. Do you see a push towards?
better patient safety now? I mean, it's, we're, we're clearly having this conversation. You've got a podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, things are happening. Is, yeah. is, are the tectonic, tectonic plates shifting a bit? They are. Uh, what's happening is I believe healthcare is experiencing whiplash from technology. The high tech and the introduction of mandating electronic medical records has flooded the industry with the promise of liquidity and cash uh, at the expense perhaps of a, a maturation process that would have organically been able to take advantage of it. We kind of, it's like putting a, a teenager and behind the wheel of a car. <laughs> we, we haven't quite got control of this yet. Uh, when you look at how technology and other sectors developed, like with banking and the way that they manage their uh, financial transactions, when you look at the sectors like aviation and, and how the necessity for safety grew out of those sectors, uh, they were able to work kind of hand in glove as the technology advanced right. in healthcare 10 years ago, I was still using paper. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> to go from 10 years ago, still using paper to this entire philosophical mind shift of all the workflows that have to change, we are still in chaos when yes. it comes to uh, adapting to technology. It's true. So we, with the expertise that carried forward was with an analog paper system. And now you drop high-tech electronics in there and the mental frame shift of just how to even engage with that is still growing and needing to develop. Wow. So, so what do you see? Maybe I'll ask a, a different question. How do you see keeping the, momentum that is starting in the right direction and amplifying that momentum to actually bring this patient safety resilience reliability discussion to the forefront so that it's much more compelling. Do do you see it moving that way or do we need to push it along? It needs help. And I believe that in what I see in other industries, you is, uh, what was it? Uh, Deming, who said that quality pays, it yeah. doesn't cost. Yeah. <laughs> we need to make the same argument for safety as well. Yeah, I agree. And, and the idea that resilience, that if you make the system stable, the system becomes much just better. It's more efficient. It's more effective. It, it meets yeah. all the tests is really a powerful event. Do you think the Nashville case, as horrible as that was with Redonda, is that helping our argument? Because that one caught a lot of press and people were really unhappy with the way they chose to handle that. It's made it certainly a lot more visible. Well, if you, uh, if you, if you criminalize air, I mean, it's just crazy mm-hmm. talk. It's just, that's nuts. It would have been gratifying to see a different response to that to see a different response from the hospital, to see a different response from the judiciary and that community. The fact that she at least was not incarcerated and that they had mercy on her is certainly a fig leaf. And the attention that it had raises awareness. And it's something that we can point to that these kinds of events, far from an individual person, these events emerge from the contributing factors that right. allow them to happen and to propagate. Right. And, and that cons- I mean, the, the primary tool that is in healthcare right now is root cause analysis. It treats everything like an assembly line. And the furthest thing from an assembly line is healthcare. <laughs> right. We are a complex dynamic process. Yeah. You're not linear. That's for sure. And, and that's interesting because you started that's how we started our discussion. And so one of the things that I think is so vital is when you're trying to break that paradigm, that, that, that Heinrich pyramid linear RCA paradigm, it almost always has to start with a discussion around error, around mistake and blame. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I look at that, cause I've been looking at this a while. I look at anytime I see a sector of the, 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 working world desperately holding on to that linearity what it tells me is that they 
they really honestly and pretty desperately want to believe that their system is good and that it's sufficient and that the work is inherently safe. The people are screwing it up. And that means we have to have a discussion pretty early with them around just the, the normalization of, of error, the normalization of making mistakes, how people are imperfect and they function in a complex world and they make lots of mistakes. They make mistakes when they're successful. They make mistakes when they fail. And those mistakes are nothing more than just the fabric of normal daily operations. Yeah. But that's a really, that's a really basic discussion that we often don't have with leadership. And I think we don't have it with leadership because we think they already know that, but they don't know it. I mean, it's a really interesting problem. You you can't fix the Heinrich model paradigm shift until you talk about air and you can't talk about air until you talk about blame. So one of the things that sent off a little aha for me as you were talking is when I think about how leadership is speaking in broad stereotypic terms. And remember, stereotypes it, are great because they save time. I'm just putting yeah, that out it, there. I'm just out there for so, the universe. Appreciate it. So <laughs> just aware that there's going to be exceptions here. Yes. That the, the impression is that there is something that uh, leadership holds up and says, here's the process. And it's their policies and procedures, and they say, this is what we want everybody to do. And they treat that structure, that infrastructure, as the process that people then interact with. Right. And I think what they miss is that people are the process. Right. It's that structure and the people. If you swapped out those people, you would have a different process. Right. You're exactly right. That doesn't happen in assembly lines. It doesn't happen in linear models. No, when they make Pringles, they make Pringles. I mean, you know, right. every, and every Pringle looks like a Pringle. No offense to Pringles. No. But what's interesting to me, and this took me a long time to figure out, is that you're exactly right. And fundamentally, it's this is built upon the belief that the hospital itself is inherently safe. And, and, and they must have to believe that in order for them to act the way they act. Because they're not sociopaths. Mm -hmm. I asked that earlier, and, and you pretty much told me no. You didn't completely yeah. tell me no, but it felt like it was a kind of a no. And it, so, it's a no. <laughs> and, so, and so they must think that the, the hospital is an inherently safe environment. The procedures, processes, practices, systems, facilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are all inherently safe. And we have to help them understand that th that's not true. They're actually inherently the opposite of safe. They're inherently, yeah. they're, they're constantly failing and they're all insufficient. I mean, uh, they're all incomplete is maybe a better word. And that well, people it, actually make those systems function. They, they make them happen. Well, the people are the moving parts, the dynamic parts. Right. And it, it's as though we have this static fixed component, which is the policies and procedures. And then we have this flexible moving part, which are the people. Well, if it wasn't for the people, then we wouldn't have had this event because they're the ones that are flexing and moving. When right. in reality, it's the people that are making those policies and procedures flex and move in order to, to do the care that they need to. And when those policies and procedures are too rigid and crack and break, then we're seeing these events escape. So it, it, the whole, the, the whole, the entirety needs to have that dynamic ability to respond and react to the environments within parameters and bounds, which but means, it's, it, well, it, it's like this, there's one section, this can't move this policy. You have to do this, but then you have this other person who's trying to uh, bend and move and, and right. make adjustments and, and working overtime and, and basically patching over the, the flaws. In right. That. Right. And, and that's what makes everything go. And, and what's amazing to me is that we, we have to, we have to build at a fundamental level a, a way to learn quickly so that we can get better data to the C-suite so the C-suite has better information by which they can have a, a, a shifting paradigm, a, a, a different idea of what's happening so that they can respond differently back into the system. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the quick answer is 
we should stop doing RCAs. Because somebody made you guys do RCAs. I mean, you weren't born with an inherent ability to do RCAs. You, you know, a bunch of people went to training and, and learned how to do an RCA and how to talk about RCAs. Are there hospitals that are doing better, quicker, more holistic learning? Johns Hopkins, maybe that comes to mind, but. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with other hospitals because uh, they're, you know, the resources devoted to that are going right. to vary. Right, of course. Institution. Uh, what you do have is you've got some, I would say, some pretty creative staff people, and you will see best practices emerge uh, within units and within these right. microcultures right. that are absolutely golden. Uh, and the worst thing possible for that area is the high turnover rate. Yeah. Because th th then you have this brief, brief glimpse of glory in this area of somebody who has finally uh, figured something that's truly awesome. And then you get turnover just dilutes it and it blows it away. So our ability to capture and retain and, and at least be sensitive to the, to those changes is pretty minimal. You know, you mentioned about data to the C-suite. I guess I'd counter uh, apologize if it sounds nitpicky, but I think information to the C-suite yeah is really critical and the c-suite i think needs to hear what that means to the front people right and then apply their filter of what it means to them because right. they're going to have their perspective they're going to have the, the productivity numbers they're going to know the contracts uh, you know and and they're understanding of course the fiscal health of the of the facility but that has to be counterbalanced with what what was the cost of that uh, event rate, for example, for that unit, how many hours of overtime had to be spent to have no falls, for example, on this patient care unit? Right. And you're exactly right. And, and, and to me, the context rich story, it's the information we're sending up to the C-suite. That, that's the, so the RCA not only is horrible because it causes everything to be linear and it, it's, it's incredibly insulting because it doesn't tell the complete story it does all bad things, and we can make a giant list of it. Probably the most offensive thing the RCA does is simplify and dumb the reporting down to the C-suite. So it, it basically sends messages up that says, bad person did bad thing. Bad person did bad thing. Good person would have done good thing, but we had bad person doing bad thing. That's so incredibly oversimplified, and it doesn't really have the voice of the people who do the work. That's the one thing I see in your world, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the Tayloristic nature of your guys' organizations is crazy. The, the, the separation between thinking and doing at the organizational level is amazing to me. I mean, lots of the corrective actions come from the C-suite. The least capable people to create corrective actions send corrective actions down to the, the most capable people in the world to actually, so, so you're always having fixes forced upon you. And it's, it's just crazy to me. I don't know. It's from the outside. It's, it's kind of remarkable. Well, you're being very kind to call them fixes. <laughs> yeah. We, <laughs> we have things forced upon us. Yeah. Whether they actually fix anything or not is, is definitely a, something that could be debated. That's remarkable. But, uh, but you know, you, you touch on something about the what's happening in healthcare. Why why does it seem like we've got sociopaths? And <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, but I like it. Uh, that's fine. And and I'll tell you right now, I've got um, I have a. There we go. I have to restart my my own capture here. Um, and I can always send you my, I can always send you my capture too, if you want it. I appreciate it. I probably will need it because I've swapped microphones and uh, yep. just discovered that I disconnected myself earlier. <laughs> I, I, I promise I have it. So I, I will gladly yeah. share it with you. Thank you. So what I wanted to get to though, is when it comes, we talked about patient safety as different from worker safety in healthcare. Right. When you come from a 
kind of that blame culture as opposed to the learning culture. Right. There is this, this drive for the accountability and responsibility aspect of events. And it, it really puts workers in a bind because, you know, to put this in a, in a different case, if I, if I was dog sitting for my neighbor and they've got a, a nice lamp and I say, I'm kind of worried about that glass lamp. Oh, don't worry that, that, you know, he's, he's fine. He, you know, so I go into the kitchen and I hear this crash. weird sound and then there's a crash and, <laughs> and there's a dog and it's like, okay. So I'm not to blame, but I'm responsible. Right. And so I would do the good thing and buy a new lamp for the neighbor because I'm responsible. But when it's not a lamp and it's a human life, there is no capacity to repay that. Right. And even if you're in the position of responsibility and we say we're not saying that you have culpability because these events emerge, where does responsibility become satisfied and held to account. And I think that's a really difficult line for a lot of the C-suite to walk. Right. And and that kind of makes me think that all the time we've spent using just culture ideas in hospitals was maybe not the smartest idea that maybe we should have really looked at this idea of restorative culture. And instead of actually looking at replacing something that's irreplaceable, a human life, we actually ask a different, more restorative set of questions. Who's been hurt? What do they need? And who's responsible to ensure that the right things get to the right people to help restore um, the organization and its ability to do important work in a complex environment? Yeah, I kind of think the just culture thing, which I, I understand why we got there, and I understand the point behind it, but I think it actually reinforced the fact that there must be injustice because we're forcing for justice. And so we sort of established a self-fulfilling prophecy there. When in fact, what we really want is the restorative nature of an organization to actually see the event as an opportunity to learn and become better because of the event. So it's not just make you whole, but it's actually make you whole and improve the environment so that the event would be difficult to transpire again. So instead of just replacing the lamp, we replace the lamp and put a little blue tack or earthquake putty underneath it. Or, you know, we're making this yeah. up so we can do anything. Um, or rubber, rubber lamp. That would be a good solution. Um, that notion of restorative is, I think, more powerful than just. And, and that's just something I've thought about. Actually, um, Sid Decker and I have talked about this kind of a lot. Because I, I think we kind of sent out the wrong signal. Or, or I think it was the right signal. It was just interpreted kind of in a linear traditional fashion. Oh, it, no question. The people who are, are really beating themselves up the most are the ones who came to work to help somebody yeah. and ended up being a part of someone's harm. Yeah. That is just devastating. Yeah. When, when you mean to do the right thing and it turns out to be the wrong thing, it's crushing. And, 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 and it's our job to, to create an environment where we can help res- restore that person's faith in their ability to do work again tomorrow. That's, that's really an important part of the discussion. And I don't think that just culture idea does a very good job at that. We have a, I guess a flow chart that we would go through using a just culture model that uh-huh. essentially determines whether this is a, it, it, it's trying to draw the line between, is this a, an issue with an individual versus an individual with the system right. or, or process? But in doing so, it's still, to your point, is not acting in a restorative fashion to recognize a harm to the individual. It's only dealing with an event. Right. And it's looking at culpability and and causality in that. So in in order to get back to the individual and and what is needed, that is a dramatically different way of looking 
at, at these um, events, there's already objections to the term second victim, as in to use the right. the case, of, you know, in Vanderbilt. Right. Well, she's still alive. How can you call her a victim? And it's it's like we need almost a different term because right. there is a psychological process and a devastation that's yeah. occurring as a result of this. And and we've we've we sort of with good intent, I think we just set the course in it. It's you kind of wish you could have take backs on some of the language. And, and I would really work like I wouldn't now knowing what I know, I would never use the word second victim just because I think it, it it's potentially it potentially sets up an argument that that I don't necessarily need to have. What I'd, if I could do anything, what I'd want to do, is get hospitals and healthcare facilities really aligned so that they're learning what failed before they learn who failed. So if I could get them to start their critique program and their postmortems program, you know if I could get them to start their operational learning with what failed uh, the need to actually ever address the who failed part becomes much less important and way far in the background. Because when you look first at the system and you think about what failed in the system that allowed the conditions necessary for this failure to happen for this patient to die, uh, for a, for a person to die in the waiting room of a, of an emergency department, you sort of fill in all the contextual blanks of how we built this system that really failed that patient. And then the people involved become really quite secondary and, and actually could be anybody. So that in the challenge with that, is when you have any particular event uh, and and you look and, and you ask the question, what failed? There's that implicit uh, understanding that there are other things that didn't fail. Right. And in the reality in healthcare, everything is failing all the time. Right, right. And it is always being detected and caught by the individuals who are working in there right. because every situation that presents in healthcare is unique and different right. to that particular time and place and resources. Right. Uh, when you, when you have a, a unit that is fully staffed, it will operate different than when they have two call-ins. Those two call-ins are going to stress different systems mm -hmm. uh, within that unit and there is going to be a different patient population on that day. There's going to be different healthcare emergencies. And so that is one of those preconditioned factors that you look at to say, you know, when we're working short staffed, our risk level for not completing some of these other mission critical components suddenly rises dramatically. We need to protect this. We need to ensure that we have some adequate staffing because it has so many downstream beneficial effects. So it doesn't mean that we're going to never have events, but it's going to decrease the likelihood of this category or type of events that we can often see. And the thing about you guys, which I find so compelling, is everything can work right and the patient still dies. Yeah. And so... So, uh, so you have to really look at it much differently because all, all the systems can perform the way they were designed to perform and the outcome is still changed because the outcome is so adaptive and the system is so complex and every situation is incredibly unique. And that's the unspoken universal second outcome. There's nobody that's going to escape death. Right. Happens to everybody. We just call it a tragedy when it happens before we expected it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that, it seems like this dialogue we're having is a dialogue that is, is soon to be had more often. I, I, I don't know. It's, it seems like there's a different, and I could be really naive. No, I am really naive and probably wrong on a lot of stuff, but it seems like we're having more conversations, better conversations than we were having even five years ago around this idea. I, I certainly hope so. The, you know, there's a, 
I also work as a nurse. Um, so in addition to being a pharmacist and when I was working as a nurse, I once had a patient uh, who had stage four pancreatic cancer, which is a horrible right. condition. Right. And it, it, there's at the time there's, there's no known treatment. There aren't any really good treatments right now. It's pretty much a death sentence. So I'm explaining to this gentleman about our policy for resuscitation. And in general, I would try to be fairly graphic so that I, I would, the person would really understand the gravity of, you know, if your heart stops, do you want a crowd of people to come in here and start jumping up and down on your chest, breaking a couple ribs in the process to maybe bring you back to life? Does that sound like something that you would want done? And the, the answer that I get more often than not is, well, if you think there's a chance, oh. <laughs> you know, so the, the reality of what happens during those times is, is completely lost on the, on right. most people. And the chances that it's going to be some TV land or movie land, miraculous recovery where you have the same level of functioning it is very small. Most people, if you successfully resuscitate, which is not a given by any stretch of the imagination, will often have long-term consequences right. as a result of not having oxygen to the brain for right. a period of time. Uh, you know, so you're, you're not really going to be back to normal in most cases. Uh, but it, it reminds me of the, a line in the movie when somebody goes, there's a one in 10 million chance that I go out with you. And I say, oh, so you're saying there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, it is like that. That's very, that's very good. So what can we do? What do you see as the future? What, what should we, as a community of people, no matter what we do, industrial safety, patient safety, medication safety, we're all kind of talking about reliable and resilient systems. What can we do collectively to help each other? I think sharing information like this is fantastic because the, the concepts that come from other industries, I would love to see that really come into healthcare. Uh, bring some folks that work in a steel factory that come in and, and draw the parallels between the handling of, of uh, dangerous substances, right. the, the, the chemicals, the, you know, the, the things that I assume they would be hot. Yeah. The molten steel. Yeah. And, and compare that to how we manage, for example, hazardous medications right now in medication safety, there is a lot of, of emphasis on this is a hazardous med. And we look at that and say, yes, but that doesn't necessarily make it less safe. We handle hazardous meds all the time. Why are we having a problem with this one? It's because we don't have the right processes and the margin of safety around how we manage this particular therapy. It's not really the medication. It's all the other dependent processes right. that go into the use of this so that it doesn't hurt people. But we still think it's a property of the medication. It's not. Risk is a property of the process. Right. You're exactly right. <laughs> So, uh, so I think the more that we're able to bring that perspective into healthcare and to shift that focus to say that when you have an error, and I hate the term error, I call that a retrospective judgment for something that already happened. Right. You, you never see errors in the wild. Yeah, I mean, they don't exist. Work, it, yeah, they no, don't you're, exist. You're exactly right. It, it's something that is only retrospective. You know, so to that sense, it's a concept. If you were making a mistake, you go, oh, look, I'm making a mistake right now. Well, then you'd stop. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, the other concept that I think really helps in healthcare is is the shift away from this idea of decision making. Because people who come to work in the to act in the best interest of patients are going to be constantly making decisions that appear to be best at the time. Right. And if you're making, what kind of decision do you have between this is the best one and this is not best? That's really not a decision. Right. That's a guiding, you know, that's a pathway. Right. So that's the path that's being followed. Well, how did we create that path? That's what we need to be looking at. Yeah, that's a much better question. I mean, I spend a lot of time 
that very topic is so important. I spent a lot of time with really senior leaders telling them the worker didn't choose the wrong choice in spite of all the right choices. So they didn't purposely not do the right thing in order to do the wrong thing. So therefore, it's not a decision. I mean, it's it's the pathway. It's the, it's the set of conditions that have aligned in such a way. And what I've taken to do is instead of talking about making bad choices, I talk about having bad choices. And and that seems to sort of shift the onus a little bit more towards this idea that the failure is probably an organizational failure, not an individual failure. But what an yeah. interesting thing. Yeah. So I, I think realizing that safe safety um, is often relegated to managers who have operational responsibilities. Right. The, the idea that a person who has trained to become a very good operator and who is maintaining processes to achieve outcomes is also responsible for the safety, but you have to have a completely different mindset. So I would love to see healthcare invest more into um, you know individuals where safety is their focus, that they can work cooperatively right. with those operations managers to begin to share some of those ideas that it's not your it's not that you have unsafe events as, as outcomes, it's that you have unsafe processes right. and that your process is going to deliver this outcome that you like and this outcome that you don't like. Right. You get both of them. You can't have one without the other. If you want to change it, you have to change your process. Okay, so I owe you. I went uh, long. I just didn't know where to cut it. So I thought, well, I'll just, because that last quote, the stuff he talks about, man, it was worth keeping. So I just was like, I'm just letting it run. So I owe you. Sorry. Michael Van Orman, Medication Safety Podcast. Man, Michael, you were the best. Thanks for being on the pod. I hope you had a great time. I know you did. Tell your friends. Learn something new every single day. You're all welcome here. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be good to each other. Be kind to each other. Check in on one another. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. Be safe.